0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, joined by Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania.
1: Hey, Kevin.
0: And it's good to be talking with you. You're back in Lebanon. Uh, how I
1: h- am? How
0: are you doing in Lebanon?
1: Um, I mean, uh, the country's kind of like falling apart. Um, it was interesting to travel during Corona times. It's kind of like, uh, all of the sort of 9-11 9-11 war on terror theater that has dominated our travel experiences for the last 20 years has now become like coronavirus theater. Um, although maybe theater is not the right word because in this case it's actually necessary precautions. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like drastic how everything's changed when flying, uh, Even in places where people, like, are out and about and don't care about the virus anymore, for some reason, like, once you go to an airport and get on a plane, everybody's just, like, masks, like, has masks on, which is good, and is, like, super just keeps themselves and terrified of getting sick. Uh, So, anyways, the travel experience wasn't bad. I'm not telling everybody to go travel, but I actually don't think traveling, if everybody's wearing a mask, is, like, a problem. Um, But being back in Lebanon has been interesting, because it's experiencing an economic collapse right now. And so, like, since I've been here, the electricity has only been coming on, like, a little bit. So it's been a bit of an adjustment. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> coming to you from Lebanon, where the electricity goes out a lot. A lot.
0: Well, I can, a sh- lot. I can share that I'm coming to you from <laughs> Chicago on July 24th. And uh, some activists got mayor lori lightfoot to blink and take down the christopher columbus statue at 3 a.m this morning
1: oh congratulations yeah. Yeah. after
0: after one of the young black women organizers had her teeth punched out by a cop like Jesus. Uh, like six or seven days ago while having a protest there and trying to bring it down themselves but but Uh, but she just rolled up a bunch of gang units and had them unleashed on a bunch of youth that were organizing around the statue and there were attacks on the press. And uh, so they forced a a confrontation and uh, they won and got the statue taken down. Uh, And then also I'm here in Chicago where we might be seeing Donald Trump's goon squad soon because um, apparently Laurie is willing to welcome them to the city of Chicago.
1: <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I thought local officials were really adamantly against uh federal
0: No, she like... says she says it's not going to be like Portland. There might be room for a partnership because they're going to do traditional crime fighting and I think she's lost her mind.
1: Wow. Well, so Portland's like really uh really weird uh because it's like like they have like uh, ice? Is that right? Like ice agents? Like D- from DHS are yeah. like working in Portland to per- to like to like tear gas protesters for what reason? Like I don't really understand why this happens. I'm I'm very confused by it. Like, what's the what's the Trump logic for Portland? The,
0: the, the pretext was to deploy them to protect federal property because they, right. be, they believed that local police there weren't doing that while there's these protests that have been uh, on and off and on and off, but mostly constant for the last month since George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police. And there's been regular activism going on. Uh, and uh, now... it's very clear that that the Trump administration and Bill Barr have decided to select Democratic-controlled cities and go there. And I think we can view it as paternalistic racism, in my opinion, because it's essentially saying that you don't know how to police black and brown communities. We are going to send our federal government police forces into these cities and deploy them and show you how we think you should fight crime and how you should manage and establish law and order in your city because you've allowed too much protest you've allowed too much rancor to exist and I think he wants to assert his authority so he can show people why uh, we need four more years of Donald Trump I'm just making the case I'm just saying that's what Donald Trump's mm-hmm. people would probably say Gotcha.
1: I, okay. You, um,
0: and but, but what's crazy is that like These mayors don't really know why these police forces are coming. They are vast majority all from the Department of Homeland Security. Some, I think, may come from the Bureau of Prisons, um, which is uh, like the Bureau of Prisons has a police force for putting down riots. And uh, we saw them already deployed in D.C. when uh, Donald Trump did the tear gassing of people on his way to doing the stunt where he held up the Bible. In front of the church, uh, and uh, so I think there's these cities don't really know why these agents are are well they know why they're coming but they don't really know what they're going to do in the city and I think there's this there's this delusion that Laurie seems to be I can speak most confidently about Chicago because I'm here and I'm watching the politics unfold I don't think. Uh, She really gets it that, uh, okay, yeah, there are shootings constantly happening on the South side of Chicago and, and something needs to be done, but all they're going to do is come here and start snatching people up off the streets in the South side, take them to be interrogated. And there are going to be civil rights lawsuits that come out of all of this. And it's not going to stop any shootings on the South side. And it's probably not going to stop guns from flowing into the South side of Chicago. It's going to just make the tensions much, much worse. It's not going to, the root of the problems aren't addressed by forming a liaison with these federal agents who are coming to Chicago, which by the way, um, I haven't had a chance to go through my writing on the department of Homeland security in the last 10 years, but you know, almost every time that I've ever covered the Department of Homeland Security as it relates to um, our our cities our, and communities domestically, it's always been that they are caught targeting activist groups and or doing something to disrupt people who are involved in protest.
1: Yeah, it's pretty incredible, um, to say the least, uh... I just, like, watching from afar, I just am kind of, like, bewildered by, like, who... Except for maybe his hardest core base, like, who this is going to appeal to. Like, he tear-gassed the mayor of... Like, his forces... These forces tear-gassed the mayor of Portland yesterday.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, no, on July
0: like, on, on, on July tear-gassing, yeah. like,
1: the, that wall of moms or whatever. Like, um... And then also I saw like this obnoxious uh, person online who was so obnoxious and unimportant. I didn't even remember their name, but they were like, I guess like one of the uh, people in like in a position of authority uh, took a photo of these protesters, gas mask or something and was like, why would you need a gas mask unless you're up to no good, you know? And then someone was like, some, someone was like, This is what Maduro says about protesters in Vene- about peaceful protesters in Venezuela. And I got annoyed because I'm like, Why are you comparing American protesters in Portland to protesters in Venezuela who actually did burn shit down? Like they burnt <laughs> down like childcare clinics. Yes. And, and like, or they burnt down preschools and like free clinics uh, and actually lynched people. So that actually that really annoyed me. I hate when right wing regime change trolls try to do that
0: shit. Oh, i seen
1: watching you guys
0: we we also see these comparisons to hong kong too which just it right. doesn't it doesn't. Uh, trump isn't, is
1: not the same trump, Not all protests are the same tr-
0: trump isn't taking a page out of xi jinping's playbook and and that doesn't even make sense because they're like at so many so i mean and right now as we record this show we're like Burning our embassies in both (laughs) countries—it's like the like the U.S. is burning theirs because they've just been told to leave, and then we kicked out some, some embassy in Houston, so they're burning their records, which somehow gets in this Trump era of hyperventilation, it gets taken as some sign of a cover up that diplomats are burning records when that's what you all that's what you always do no but it's what they always do it's what it's what we always do every country that has to get out because they're forced out by a government they just they burn everything because you're not going to try to take that back with you
1: yeah well not just that you know what's interesting to me is like so you're talking about how the uh u.s is forcing the chinese consulate in houston to shut down, which is actually reminiscent of something they, that the U.S. did, I think it was like seven, six or seven years ago, to the Russian consulate in like San Diego or something. It was just like an it, it, like a this stupid escalation uh, with this like new Cold War, um, and the U.S. is accusing this Chinese consulate of like trying to spy on people and steal U.S. like information. And what's funny to me about that is, like, it's, like, just such projection because that's literally what, like, U.S. embassies and consulates around the world do. So I guess they only – like, they assume that their adversaries do the same in America.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't do a show last week, but I used the show to share – an interview with Jen Perlman, who's uh, running a primary challenge against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida. Uh, it was something that I put up an interview at Shadowproof, and I hadn't shared the audio from it, and she gave me permission to share. And um, she's actually pretty good. She's got um, you know a, a rare Democrat who does what you don't usually see Democrats do, and have complained about. Rania is taking a position on dismantling the military industrial complex and uh she stands up against debbie wasserman schultz and her sucking up to white rich venezuelans who oppose Nicolas maduro and want to see him thrown out uh she's actually she's actually said to me in the interview which you can go back and listen to from last week if you're hearing this episode is uh that she's talked to poor and working class Venezuelans who will tell her they support Maduro and she listens to them and why they say that to her and thinks that those reasons are just as valid, if not more valid than the ones coming from the rich people in her district. So, um, I, 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 I applauded her for her, her stand. And, uh, I, I was glad to be able to share a good conversation um, I mean, she even also says that I, I I, I gave her a low ball and I set it up like this. I said, uh, so do you see yourself as someone who subscribes to the way Bernie Sanders thinks that uh, we just need to have less wars abroad? And we need to bring those resources back home and invest them here. And she goes, no, you know, actually... I'm a I'm a Tulsi Gabbard no more regime change wars kind of Democrat. Oh, <laughs> that's
1: good to hear. I was like, oh, that's so you. Nice
0: to hear. Oh, so you you made it a little more aggressive than than, than where I was going because certainly, um, Bernie is uh, is rather timid on foreign policy. Although, so um, I think a good update to give here before we um, move on to um, another topic that may occupy most of the rest of our show here is to just mention that there were these very media uh, modest, very modest amendments that were put forward to the the, the what is it nearly like one trillion dollar military budget at this point uh, it was a very small um, amount they, the Bernie Sanders and then I think Elon Omar and others in the House had come together and said they were going to push a 10% cut of the military budget and uh that was that was voted down.
1: Clear, that's ten percent of seven hundred and forty billion dollars.
0: Yeah, so it like, would to yeah. us it's a lot of money. To us it's like a hundred billion dollars and that seems like, yeah. like a lot 70. to us as we're struggling to make ends meet during a pandemic. But but that is is a percentage still ten percent. And like that's staggering mm-hmm. because hundred billion is a ton of money money there. and yeah. there are there are militaries of powerful countries of the world that don't have hundred billion dollar military uh right like uh, yeah uh, I, mean,
1: I look even if we even if we cut 10 percent it's like we'd still be spending more than the next 11 countries combined and that's like keeping in mind that it, it's actually kind of cutting what trump increased
0: yeah yeah 10 percent uh, is actually even probably what nancy pelosi gave him uh two years ago like that's probably all, right,
1: exactly. probably doesn't
0: even cover all four years mm-hmm. um so that was that was an illustration and, and by the way just just so everyone knows the the reason why i find this vote to be more appalling than past votes that have failed is because chuck schumer voted in favor of cutting 10 percent, and he did this you if you're aware of how politics works You can vote, yes, knowing full well that this is not going to succeed, but you're going to get a vote that makes you look good as a politician. And that's what Chuck Schumer did. But then all Mm -hmm. these other Democrats actually showed that they are so militaristic that they won't even do a vote for show because it wasn't going to pass in the Senate, not under Mitch McConnell. But yet they couldn't have a vote on their record against the military-industrial complex.
1: So 60% of Democrats in the Democrat-controlled House, from what I understand, voted against this measure. 60%. Yeah. Like, that... And, of course, you know, um, Stephen Semler, who at one point I'd like to have on the show, he's a co-founder of this, like, new think tank called the Security and Policy Reform Institute. He... Um, he like did a post on, like he went through the Democrats who who voted uh, against this measure to cut the military budget by ten percent, and he found that they have significantly more donations from the defense industry mm-hmm. uh, than the Democrats who voted in favor of it in the House. So like it's it's just this was as this was so frustrating to watch for the reasons you mentioned. And on top of it, it really illuminated just how much weapons manufacturers and the war industries control our freaking government.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one of those people controlled is Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, mm-hmm. a- among, among many, many others who are in this Congress. And as I think we alluded to when we talked to Gareth Porter, it's Democrats who are pushing to keep troops in afghanistan uh i i utterly despise i think he's a gross person but i happened to catch a part of a committee hearing while doing research for a story in which matt gates uh, who's a joke you know i mean he's uh acted like he has a a, a cuban for a son uh, and, and, and is, is, is and, and, his, his boy, boy. <laughs> whatever is right? going on he
1: actually no there's like it's like his boyfriend right like,
0: i I, uh, it's, it's very bizarre, but, uh, and probably there should be some kind of an intervention, but, uh, he was, uh, speaking against military interventionism in this very formal, uh, they do this every... So often uh, where they bring the Pentagon secretary and they bring the top military general before the committee and you get to ask questions. And, you know, he's and it's just like this is the voice now, unfortunately, it's coming from these racist white supremacist or white nationalistic types who are libertarian, who oppose war and the progressives uh, don't seem to cut through, don't seem to make it. Uh, And they don't fight through the noise. Uh, They don't... Like, when Pelosi or Schumer or... um, You know, he's gone now, fortunately, but, like, Elliot Engel or anybody else would set the... uh, Menendez, you know, the hawk on Iran and everything. Uh, Anytime their voices are out there, it's not like you see the progressives willing to stand up and challenge.
1: Yeah. Um... I mean, I don't want to go into this whole conversation again because we've had it like a million times, but like it's stuff like this that makes me look at people who are like, we just have to stick with the Democrats and try to make them a more progressive party. Like, how long do we keep doing that?
0: Yeah. And
1: like, you know, seriously, like, what's the, is there like a time cap on that? Like, is there an expiration date for how long we're supposed to just kind of like wait for, for a, progressive Democrats to get elected enough so that we can pass like really like measly legislation. That means like slightly less inequality.
0: I, I think, yeah, well, I, I don't know if you would agree with me, but it seems like that's such a cop out because you find yourself in a system that can't support what you want politically, that can't support your voice, that you can't get Anything out of it, and there are all these options on the table. There have been things that I have raised on and off again for the last decade, and I've seen others who have pushed them for 20, if not 30 years, saying, Well, we have a system that only allows for two parties to run in elections. We have we could have a, a multi party system, but we have to go to rank choice voting, we have to open up access at the ballot box. We have to do this. We will have to actually take voter suppression seriously. You can't be like Al Gore or John Kerry and see hundreds of thousands of people disenfranchised by the GOP in 2000 and 2004 and then just shrug and be like, "If I say something, I'm going to look like a sore loser." You have to speak up for those people so that people so that every citizen can see that elections are being taken and stolen and uh, you, have to, you have to defend the the vote and, and, and not just, I mean, use it as a way to win uh, uh, support at, before election day happens, but like in the immediate aftermath when it's clear that the outcome isn't exactly correct. Like let's say in Georgia where uh, I, it's probably so that Brian Kemp stole that election from Stacey Abrams. Well, you need to do more to forcefully make your point that something happened that was illegal and illegitimate, and they just won't. They just, they just don't. And then we get trapped in this conversation of spoilers. And uh, if you vote for Jill Stein or anyone in the Green Party, then you're on the side of Trump. Um, uh, we've got all Or the Russians, now it's worse. (laughs) Now it's worse. It's got a nexus to supporting a foreign power to undermine our U.S. government, which is uh, way beyond what it was when it was just like, okay, Ralph Nader, why are you such a gadfly? Or why are you such a narcissist who only cares about yourself and your own project as a a human being? And it's just like... We're here because people don't do anything in between our elections to make the system more open. And they, they really don't care. There've been individual states that have made it easier for people to register their voice and show that they don't want a Democrat or a Republican, or they don't want the corporate brands of Democrats and Republicans. But by and large, uh, we have all these options on the table and nobody does anything with them. So, I th- sorry
1: about that noise. I had to turn on. I just realized if I meant to mute it, I had to <laughs> put something into the sink. It's, so I'm uh, glad everybody got to hear.
0: No, we hear uh, <laughs> we we hear uh, you in your living space, uh, and I think I just, as, like
1: like moving things around.
0: <laughs> I think fun. it's a good. It's it's kind of a signal. Like a you schedule. you don't know that uh, when Rania drops things in the sink, it's a signal to me to move on to the next topic.
1: I'm like, come on, Kevin. Come on. I'm done with uh, you
0: know. You, uh, no, so uh, we had um, a, a tragic passing of Michael Brooks, who was a journalist and had his own show and was part of uh, a family of journalists connected to the Young Turks and also the Majority Report hosted by Sam Cedar. and I never had the opportunity to speak with him or meet him And I did not regularly watch his show, but I was very taken by the response to his death and all the tributes that poured out for Michael. And it's had me for the last few days reflecting on the state of media and thinking about a lot of different issues, which can't really be resolved in one conversation here but we've fortunately, at uh, another disclosure, we've talked about a lot of the things that animated Michael, and also what he was gaining notoriety for. And I find it bittersweet because uh, I, I suppose bittersweet isn't the right word. Uh, I find it more troubling that he died in this moment because there has been this. What, what people have called the letter that Harper's put out. And it ignited contentious debate and uh, vitriol and disgust and then also righteous indignance over the people who were signers of the letter. And it started a, a, a lot of rounds of conversation and in ignited many op-eds and columns about what cancel culture is and is not. And there were many responses to the letter. And uh, some of our friends over at Useful Idiots, Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper, have been doing multiple conversations around it. And to keep it on Michael, I'll, I'll just say, he I didn't realize that he had put a book out in April until I went looking for some... Something that I could share. Um, I didn't have an experience, but I wanted to do my part to put out a, a reminder and celebrate this person with everybody else because I think, by and large, if I look at his work, it was the kind of progressive or lefty media work that we want journalists to engage in. That I think, between you and me, we would celebrate. And his work was built around discovery, it was built around. Uh, digging into history uh he was into uh, the history of south africa he was into the history of liberation movements he had an open mind and was into exploring what ever came his way and in digging into I, I think he's the example of an intellectual journalist in the best sense and he had written a book that he put out in april that that well, it was published in April. He wrote it before that, obviously, called Against the Web, a Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. And I was reading some summary of it and going through and seeing that it, it documents uh, many of these characters who have taken advantage of this Harper's letter. But also uh suggests that this 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 new right uh, that has risen has a lot of charlatans who are. Um, taking advantage of the the, the political climate and uh, the it, it gets I think it has some connection to some of the cancel culture, which as his sister says was something that really upset and 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 irritated Michael. And so, I've I've spent the past few days thinking about uh, his example and 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 what that means for my work and I, I can tell from looking at everybody's tributes that it is a a, a terrible loss and that. I mean, it's an understatement to say that there's a, there's a void right now that people are feeling because of, of what he meant to them as a friend. Uh, I have a couple tributes before us of people who are friends of the show. And then, um, Ronnie, I'll let you say whatever you would like, but Abby Martin, um, considered Michael a friend and tweeted this picture of both of them with their fists pumped. And she said, he was not only an amazing journalist and passionate fighter for justice. He was funny, genuine, and selfless. Please tell people how much they are loved and supported because you might not get another chance. My heart hurts so much. And then, uh, Max Blumenthal, who's been on our show, shared a story of meeting Michael saying he first met, Michael over 10 years ago at a non-anti-Zionist Passover. He had me rolling with a riff on a future birthright Israel program marketed as, quote-unquote, interactive, where each participant gets to bulldoze their own home. His mischievous humor and commitment to justice were special. I hadn't been in touch with Michael in a minute, but I always followed his work. He was sharpening his perspective, growing more confident and explicitly anti-imperialist, and bringing many along with him. Dismaying to see a journey as meaningful as his cut short, and you know the other thing that was very impressive, and and speaks to the kind of impact he was having, is that Lula, Lula in Brazil, uh, remembered that Michael had been, had had interviewed him not too long ago, and it left a mark on Lula, and he noticed when. Michael died that when it it was announced that he had died, that uh, something terrible had happened and he paid tribute to the loss of of Michael. And there were others in the left in Brazil who celebrated Michael and, and what he was doing to share the struggle they're fighting against Jair Bolsonaro and fascism, the rise of fascism in Brazil
1: so i mean yeah that was uh that was pretty incredible to see i think his date- he was actually like trending uh in Brazil at one point um so I actually met him uh i think like it was probably i think it was twenty sixteen so four years ago um like before the trump before trump became president um I met him in New York he was a really nice guy uh he, I think at the time, I don't know if he had the Michael Brook. I don't think he had the Michael Brook show yet. He hadn't quite started that yet. He was still uh, like hosting with Sam Cedar, and he had like, you know, a couple different podcasts he was working on. He was like a, he was a really nice, funny, like, like caring leftist um, who really was a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders back in 2016, um, and he was really nice to me and. You know, I wish we'd kept in touch more since then. Um, I don't live in New York, so, like, a more distance thing. But I always followed his work after that, and I think he followed mine. And, you know, uh, he had me on a show in the past, and he was really nice, always, like, really good on Israel-Palestine, even before others weren't. Um, And so, like, it was really sad to see that news. I mean, he was young. He was, like, 36 uh yeah. seemingly healthy guy and like it, it just really sad that's why I just felt really sad when I saw he died. I, I wasn't like close with him I haven't seen him in four years um but just really sad not that I'd feel happy if somebody died unless it was like Henry Kissinger but like just sad because he's a good guy, he's an important voice. you can tell he really cares about things that he's analyzing and talking about and discussing he really cares about the politics that he's preaching you know he really means it um and it just kind of like it's just a sad year you know just kind of like an added sadness to the year of 2020 which has just been a terrible year
0: (laughs) thank you for listening to this week's episode of the unauthorized disclosure podcast if you'd like to unlock the full episode for this week, go to patreon.com slash disclosure, patreon.com slash disclosure. There you can sign up and get access to all of our episodes, as well as early access to episodes and access to the live streams that we have done for our patrons. Thank you, and we'll be back next week with another episode.